Amen. Well, for those of you who have looked ahead to our title of our sermon today, you see that our worship team did a good job answering that question in the song selected this morning. So thankful for them. Wonderful job. Well, I've, I've shared this story with you before, but I want to share it again because it fits where we're going to go this morning. A while back, a few years ago, I was at home on a Saturday morning and I was visited by two men from a familiar religious group. And having taken uh, cults, a cults class in seminary, I knew what they believed, but I let them share and as they're sharing, I began to think about if a casual observer were to be looking in on our conversation, knowing where I fell and where I, what I believed as a Christian, but not knowing what these two men believed, they might assume that we're on the same page spiritually because these men were using a lot of Christian language and terminology. They were talking about salvation. They were giving high praise to, to Jesus. But knowing what they believed, I was waiting for my moment and then I asked them a question and the way I answered this question and the way they answered the question completely cleared the waters on where we both stood. I asked them this question. Let me ask you this. What do you believe to be true about Jesus? Then we began to talk about what Scripture teaches about Jesus. And I shared with them that, that Scripture reveals that, that Jesus is not a created being. He is creator. He is God the Son, the eternal Son of God, who in the fullness of time came from heaven to earth and He took on flesh. He became one of us, being truly God and truly man and lived the perfect life that we could never live. And He laid that perfect life down in our place so that we, through faith alone, in Him alone, could be forgiven of our sin and made right with God through Christ. When I shared that, they admitted to me that that's not what they believe. They believe Jesus to be a created being, not creator. Though they have a high view of Jesus, they believe that he is less than God. And they have a works-based view of salvation. Now, at first, in that conversation, those differences were not clear. But get this, when we got to Jesus, it became crystal clear. Here's my point. It is so important when you are talking to people about what you believe and why that you center on Jesus because everything hinges on who we say he is. Believers, there's no more important question than that one. We must have this, what we believe about Jesus nailed down. There are questions in life that are important that we need to have answered. When you graduate high school, what are you going to do next? Are you going to go to college? Where are you going to go to school? Who are you going to marry? How many kids are you going to have? What job are you going to have? Where are you going to live? Those are important questions in life, but they pale in comparison to this one. No one understood this better than the gospel writers, which is why they go to great lengths to make known who Jesus is throughout their gospel accounts by reporting on the works that he did, on what he taught and what people said about him. And Luke is no exception to this. 
If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9 if you're not there already. We are continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22. Luke is going to focus in on this question. In fact, all of Luke 9 is really focused on this question of who Jesus is. But Luke is sharing with us in this account a a back and forth that Jesus had with his disciples. So let's look at it. I'm going to read it for you and then we'll, we'll break it down. Luke 9, 18 through 22. This is God's word, believers. Hear it. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others said, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am, he said. Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let's pray together. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is not the first time that Luke answers this question for us. He returns to it again and again because this was the question of the hour. This was the question of the day. Many were asking, who is this man? Who are his parents? Where did he get his education? By what authority does he say what he says? And by what authority does he do what he does? Who is Jesus? We learned before the feeding of the 5,000 that Herod was asking this question. Herod wanted to know. He shared his rule with two other brothers, and he was the ruler at this time, Tetrarch over Galilee, where Jesus was ministering at the time. And and he wanted to know, and here's what they shared to him about what people thought of Jesus. Some say he's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets had appeared. And Herod's not really buying that because he knew he had John put to death. He had him put to death by beheading. He knew there was no coming back from that. But Herod was still asking this question, who is this about whom I hear such things? He wanted to know. Many had their opinions. Luke here in this passage shows us that there is only one right answer to this question. There there are two types of people in this world. Those who have the right answer to that question and those who do not. 
those who respond in light of what that answer is in the proper way and those who do not. And I hope and pray this morning that through the study of this text, you will learn where you land on this question. And if you're not thinking rightly about Jesus, and if you have not responded rightly to that revelation, I pray that you would this morning. I want to direct your attention to three things in this story that are very, very important. I want you to see the prayer of Jesus. I want you to see the profession made about Jesus. And then lastly, I want you to see the passion of Jesus. Notice first the prayer of Jesus. Look at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. So notice here we're told again that Jesus was praying before this account. Now I have told you this before, but whenever Luke in his gospel account mentions that detail that Jesus is praying, we really need to perk up because what follows that is a major event, a, a, a major decision made in Jesus' earthly ministry, a miraculous work that happens, a very important work. So whenever we hear that Jesus is praying, we need to really listen closely. We see in Luke chapter 3, as Jesus was being baptized, you remember that event? And the Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father's voice rings out from the heavens, This is my Son. While that happens, Jesus is praying. In Luke chapter 4, when He's in the wilderness, he, he broke away at the very beginning of His ministry to fast and pray. We're told that the devil comes to tempt Him. He's praying at that time. Later on in Luke chapter 6, before he chooses his 12 disciples, we're told that, Peter, that Jesus was praying. Here in, in Luke 9, before this back and forth and this important declaration by his disciples, we learn that Jesus is praying later in Luke 9. When he is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, we're told Jesus is praying. In Luke chapter 22, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he is arrested and tried and beaten and killed, hung at Calvary, Jesus is praying. So we need to really listen closely when we hear that Jesus is praying. You know why Jesus prayed before all of these major events in his life? Because prayer was common practice in Jesus' life. You know, sometimes people hear this and they think, well, the application to be made is, I need to start praying before major events in my life. No, you need to start praying <laughs> before all events in your life, great and small. If you bring the smallest matters before the Lord and you spend time with Him there, communing with Him and praying, you won't neglect Him in the big moments either. So it's significant when we hear that Jesus is praying. Notice after the prayer of Jesus, you have the profession about Jesus. Look at verses 18 and 19. And He asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So we see that the disciples repeat back those same opinions that were reported to Herod, right? What were the opinions of the day? Some say he was John the Baptist. Now this 
sort of makes sense because we've said in the past that, that, that John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry, it fit together like a ball and glove. And God had planned this in this way. John was sent out first. He was the forerunner. He was preparing the way for Jesus. His message was one of sin and repentance. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. He, he was sent out to prepare the way of the Lord. And then Jesus comes and tells of this great work that God is going to do in and through him to provide salvation for all who believe on him. And he begins to talk about this work that God's going to do in the heart and lives of the hearers, convicting of them of sin and bringing them to faith in him. And he's talking about this work he's going to accomplish at Calvary so that we can be saved. So, so there were some similarities there. We can see some similarities in, in John and Jesus' ministry, but they, they should have known that if they really listened to John, they should have known that he was not Jesus because remember John the Baptist said of Jesus, I'm not worthy enough to untie his sandals. John said of his ministry that I must decrease so that he may increase. Some were saying Elijah. Elijah was a prophet that the Jewish people looked up to. Very important prophet in the Old Testament. He was known for his boldness. Remember, he stood before the wicked king Ahab and Jezebel on behalf of God and, and on behalf of righteousness, right? Elijah was the great miracle-working prophet who did not see death. He, he ascended to, to the Father, ascended to God, right? Didn't see death. And many believed that he was going to return in the same way many saw him go. They used Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 to interpret it in this way. They interpreted God's words in this way where he said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Many believed that's who Jesus was. He, they saw him coming. And, and he talks about coming from, from heaven to earth, right? And, and he's coming to, to rescue those suffering from from great trouble, so many thought it's Elijah. Others thought one of the prophets had, had risen. They thought highly of the office of prophet at this time. And when they looked at Jesus and they saw he's knowledgeable of the scriptures and he's speaking of this future work of redemption and he's performing miracles, they thought it's, it's one, of the, one of the prophets. Here's what I want you to see about all these, these opinions of Jesus. This is high praise that people are giving. And if it was said of certain people, it would be great praise for them. Even John the Baptist, some believe that they didn't think highly of John. Yeah, they did. The religious leaders had an issue with them because of what he said about them. But remember, they kept that under wraps because they knew that many believed John to be a prophet. So they didn't want to upset the crowd. That's high praise that's given of Jesus here. The problem with these opinions is they fall short of who Jesus truly is. They fall short of how great He is. The problem is they don't say enough of Him. Let's say I were out today and I crossed paths with Michael Jordan. Okay, For those of y'all that don't know, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player to ever pick up a basketball. He is. And to our younger audience, He is. You hear all this conversation today about who's the greatest. It's already been settled. It's Michael Jordan. <laughs> now, y'all didn't see it going here this morning, did you? Um, let's say I would go up to Michael Jordan and say, Hey, Mike, that's what I'd call him if I saw him. 
would be on a first name basis. Mike, man, you're one of the greats of all time. You are the Clyde Drexler of your day. Now, for those of y'all that don't know, Clyde the Glide Drexler is one of the greatest shooting guards ever in the NBA. He's in ESPN Top 40. He's a Hall of Famer. He averaged over 20 points a game during his career. Great basketball player. He's no Michael Jordan. Mike would be like, what are you talking about? Clyde Drexler, right? He's a great basketball player, but Mike is the greatest of all time. You see the difference? That's an insult, really, if someone were to say that. Compare him to somebody less than than who he truly is. There are many in our world today who speak highly of Jesus. They say he's a great man, great moral teacher, left us a great example, worthy of emulation. Those two men who visited my home on that day, they claim to have a high view of Jesus, higher than most. The problem is, and the problem with many of the opinions in our day and many of the opinions in Jesus' day is they fall infinitely short of who He truly is. He's not simply a prophet. He is the perfect revelation of God. Not simply a good moral teacher. He is the all-knowing Word of God. He is not the first created being. He is the one true creator of all. And His life and death did not simply provide for us a good example. It purchased for us our salvation. Folks, we've got to get it right. When we talk about Jesus, our salvation depends on who we say he is and how we respond to that revelation. It's the difference between life and death, heaven and hell, salvation and condemnation. Jesus understood this, which is why he's directing his disciples toward this revelation he looks at them in the eyes and he says but who do you say that i am peter pipes up and he says point blank you are the christ of god and jesus says bingo you're right peter that is exactly who i am that title the christ of god blew all of the others out of the water What Peter is saying here is, you are the promised one. You are the one the prophets of old spoke of. You are God's man, His Messiah. The one God spoke of when He was speaking to the serpent on the heels of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 when He says, one is going to come from the seed of the woman who is going to crush you. Jesus is the snake crusher from Genesis 3 who has come to destroy the works of the devil. He is the blessing to the nations who was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He is God's forever king who was promised in the line of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's what Peter is saying when he says you are the Christ of God. You are the the holy and anointed one. The one promised from the prophets of old, sent by God into this world to right all that was wronged in the beginning at the fall. You are the Christ, the Messiah of God. Peter's 
profession. It, it, it aligned with other great professions that we see in the Gospel of Luke. You remember that wonderful, glorious, angelic birth announcement from Luke chapter 2 when the angel says to the shepherds, he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's who Jesus is. Not John, not Elijah, not another prophet. He is the Christ. Christ the Lord. Peter's profession also aligned with that of, of Simeon. You remember Simeon from Jerusalem? We're told he was righteous and devout. And he reported to Mary and Joseph that the Spirit had told him he would not see death before seeing the Lord's Christ. Remember in, in Luke chapter 4, while Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth, he reads a, a messianic passage from Isaiah and speaks of the anointed one of God. And then after reading it, Jesus says this, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And after encountering Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 41, we have demons professing, you are the Son of God. Boy, our, our profession, our view of Jesus better be higher than that of demons. They profess, you're the Son of God. Here in Luke 9, you have Luke showing for the first time that this great truth of Jesus' person, it's, it's becoming true for His disciples. Now, they don't understand all the ins and outs of what the Messiah came to do. They believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they still have problems viewing the fact that He's going to be crucified as a good thing. That's why in Matthew's account, when Peter makes that, that great profession, then Jesus tells about how He is going to suffer and die. You remember what Peter does? He pulls Him aside and He rebukes Him. Says, so you got to stop talking about this. Surely that's not going to happen. What good is that going to do? You being killed. Peter didn't see it. So they, they didn't understand all the ins and outs. And, and we know that they're about to see it though, right? Because we're told we're going to come to it pretty quickly later on that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And when he enters in there, he'll be shown to be the Messiah and then he will go to Calvary to do this great work. They don't understand that yet, but Peter shows here, he knows who he's following. He is following the Christ of God, the Messiah, Christ the Lord. Who are you following this morning? Who are you following? Some of you may say, Jesus. But let me ask you this, do you know him for who he really is? Do you know Him as the Christ of God, God the Son, Christ the Lord? And have you responded to Him the way God calls for you to respond to Him in His Word? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you fallen at the feet of Jesus? Are you looking to Him? Are you trusting in Him alone for your salvation? If not, that's the invitation I want to extend to you today to do just that. To repent and bow the knee. To Jesus. We've looked at the prayer of Jesus, the profession made about Jesus. Now let's end by talking about the passion of Jesus. Look at verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. So after that amazing profession made by Peter, Jesus responds in a surprising way. He says, tell this to no one. It's statements like this that prove to me the truthfulness of these accounts because I read where there were many around this time who were claiming to be the Messiah and of those who had followers, they, none of them were telling their followers to tell no one. They were saying, tell everyone, right? Jesus does the opposite. He says, tell no one. Now, why would he say that? I, I, I thought he wanted them to be his witnesses, right? Doesn't he say that? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you're going to be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, then on to Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the, uh, of the earth. Didn't he tell them that? Isn't that what he wanted them to be, was his, his witnesses? Yeah, at the appointed time. Timing is everything in Jesus' earthly ministry, and he always does what needs to be done at the perfectly appointed time. Jesus knew that that title, Messiah, was misunderstood by his disciples, but, but certainly by the religious leaders of the day. They were looking for the Messiah to be this mighty military leader, this political revolutionary who was coming to make life good for them, who was coming to be king, who was coming to rescue them, release them from Roman Rule. And so he did not want people to get the wrong idea about him at the wrong time because he was about to set his face to go to Jerusalem to accomplish that work there. And then he would be revealed as the Messiah and show the work he came to do. But, but to prevent that from happening too soon, he tells them to be quiet to some. But notice he gives them an explanation to his, to his disciples of what he came to do. Look at what he says. He says this in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He says, you're right, Peter. I am the Christ of God. You are right in thinking that I have come to destroy an enemy. I have. You are right to, to think that I have come to set captives free. I have. But the enemy that I have come to defeat is sin and death. I have come to destroy the works of the devil. I have come to break chains in your life, but the chains that I've come to break is sin in your life. And I've come to rescue you, but I've come to rescue you from God's judgment and restore you to a right relationship with Him. And the way I'm going to accomplish this work is very, very unique. I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to be raised. These religious leaders who are looking for this strong military leader, this political liberator, they are going to overlook me. They're going to reject me. Even though I am the Messiah, they're going to reject me as the Messiah. And they're going to have me, they're going to have me put to death. But it's through that rejection, through that death, through my resurrection, will come salvation for all who believe on me. That's who I am, Peter. And that's the work that I've come to accomplish. 
He's the Lamb of God who has come to lay his perfect life down and take that perfect life up so that he can give that perfect life over to all who repent of their sin and believe on him so that he can raise them up to eternal life in him. That's what Jesus came to do. So I want to end with the question that I led with this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Ask yourself that question today. Like I said earlier, no more important question than that one. How we answer that question is a matter of eternal significance. We learn from God's word that Jesus is God the Son who was sent by the Father from heaven to earth, became one of us, lived the perfect life for us, fulfilling all righteousness. He perfectly met the demands of God's commands, and he laid that perfect life down in our place. He took on God's wrath and judgment that were, that were deserving, that we deserved. He took that on for us. He died and he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father on high and he is seated on his throne in the heavenlies before him. And God tells us in his word that Christ accomplished this work so that if we would repent of our sin and believe on him, placing our faith and trust in Christ alone for our salvation, we can be forgiven of sin. We can be made right with God. We can be restored to a right relationship with Him. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation this morning? Is He your only hope? If not, I pray you would give your life over to Him right now, today. No more important question than that in your life. Everything hinges on what you do with Jesus. I pray you would bow before Him bow down before him as we sang today. He is Lord of all. Give your life up and over to him and be saved. Let's pray together.